Hello there and welcome into another edition of the Intersection Podcast with conversation highlights from the Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Katie Miller of Sight and Sound Films joined me recently on the Meeting House to discuss the first foray of the longstanding ministry of Sight and Sound into a film release in theaters. It's based on the life of a famous poet who wrote a familiar Christmas carol. Material from that conversation is coming up. Next, Hedy Miramadi of the Christian Post is described as a former Muslim of Iranian descent, and she discussed ongoing protests in the nation of Iran where residents are continuing to call for freedom from an oppressive regime and religious system. And on this edition of The Intersection, Congress has passed a bill called the Respect for Marriage Act which underscores same-sex marriage in the law, but also places people and organizations who do not support it due to religious beliefs at risk of legal challenges. Mary Beth Waddell of Family Research Council provides a closer look at this law. Finally, it's not unusual to see hostility toward Christmas expressed this time of year. And in the Seattle area, that adversarial relationship toward the holiday has extended to other religious faiths as well, Hiram Sasser of First Liberty explores these circumstances and the legal implications. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Katie Miller is Director of Marketing and Communications for Sight and Sound. And in a Meeting House conversation recently, she provided information on its first movie presentation, a Christmas-related film entitled I Heard the Bells Through Sight and Sound Films. Here now from that conversation is Katie Miller. All the way back, going back to 2019, we really felt like the Lord was calling us to grow. And we weren't at first sure what that meant. We thought maybe another location or something along those lines. Um, And then we kind of started to say, you know, we really feel like the Lord is calling us to um, take our storytelling beyond the stage and beyond the Bible. There are so many amazing, inspiring, true stories of how God is still working in lives throughout history and um, and, and even up until today that are stories that are waiting to be told. And so we announced to our organization at the end of 2019 that we were going to start very um, carefully and cautious, cautiously pursuing um, a production of feature, uh, stepping into production of feature films. And we were going to do that by producing a short film based on a Christmas story called I Heard the Bells. And so we were starting to have those conversations right at the top of 2020. And then, as we all know, uh, the pandemic hit and everything changed. We closed down and through a set of miraculous circumstances, um, ended up in the middle of the pandemic, launching our online streaming platform, Sight & Sound TV, which really, you know, we've been saying this for uh, ever since, but for 50 years, people have been coming to us and now we get to go to them. And it's something that only God can do, you know, in a moment when the doors are dark and the future is very uncertain to be birthing something new in the middle of that um, just felt like a really special time of the Lord guiding our steps. And it really kind of propelled us forward coming out of COVID um, to having this nationwide and worldwide audience um, for our filmed stage shows. And it really did begin to lay the foundation of stepping into feature films. And so as we were coming out of COVID and starting to recover, we began to um, shoot the first few scenes of I Heard the Bells. And after we saw some of the footage, very much 
um, almost immediately said, this is not a short film. This is a full-length feature film. And so we redirected and over the last two years have been producing this film and cannot wait. When I say cannot wait, literally cannot wait <laughs> for it to be in movie theaters nationwide and to share it um, with the nation. What about Henry Wadsworth Longfellow made it attractive to Sight and Sound to actually make him the, the central figure in this film? Yeah. So as we're stepping into Sight and Sound films, the thing that we feel really passionate about um, is telling stories of people whose lives changed the world because Christ first changed them. And that's the heartbeat of why we are launching into this new branch of our ministry. And as we began to dive into Henry's life and um, the circumstances that surrounded him leading up to writing the poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, um, it just it just struck a chord with us for, um, you know, where we are as a, you know, as a society, as a country, as a nation, as a world um, coming out of the last several years. So Henry um, Wadsworth Longfellow, he's, when he was alive, he was known as not only America's most famous, famous poet, but America's most famous person. He was a celebrity in his own right. He was, you know, at the time, there were not movie stars, there weren't rock bands, there were poets and writers. And he was friends with Charles Dickens. And the two of them really led, um, they were a voice of culture, they were a voice of the church, they were a voice um, throughout the world at the time. And um, through a set of incredibly challenging and tragic circumstances, he finds himself um, experiencing tremendous loss at the start of the Civil War when the country is divided and he doesn't know where to turn for relief. He um, ends up really starting to question his faith, walking away from his faith and um, as, starting to ask the question, where is God? Is God sleeping? Is God dead? Like, where is he in the middle of all of this? And if you're familiar with the Christmas carol, um, you know, there's the stanza that says, in, in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. And then it eventually leads you to, then peel the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. And this film really takes place between those two stanzas of the time of him asking the hard questions. You know, where is God in my pain and my loss? Um, to him finding new hope um, that the Lord brings to him on Christmas Day, which then results in him writing um, writing this poem, which is just beautiful and still is sung throughout the world today. And I think truly resonates with um, what some of our own personal experiences have been throughout the last couple of years. Katie Miller here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website, IHeardTheBellsMovie.com. Next on this edition of The Intersection, it's Hedia Miramadi, exclusive columnist for The Christian Post. She is a former Muslim, and her parents are Iranian. In a Meeting House conversation, she provided analysis of protests in Iran in the aftermath of an incident involving a young lady who died after being arrested by the nation's morality police for not wearing a headscarf properly. Here now from that conversation is Hedia Miramadi. I was very devout for, for many, many years, for 22 years to be exact. And people often ask me, how could you, you're so liberal, you're so open-minded, like how could you have stu stood that for so long? And it's, and it's interesting to me that when I, I, I was actually in FBI headquarters and I decided to finally take my head cover off and the religion unraveled. 
because people told me I was going to hang from my hair for an eternity in hellfire because I no longer wore a headscarf. And I said, how can I worship a God that would put me in hellfire for an eternity for a piece of fabric? Uh, That doesn't sound like God to me. And the religion literally unraveled. So even before I met the Lord Jesus Christ, Islam unraveled for me. And I told my friends and family, I can't stay in this religion. I cannot worship a God that is that cruel and that arbitrary, because that doesn't sound like God to me. And so I'm a firm believer that there's a spiritual oppression that happens Mm. from a headscarf, and there's a spiritual liberty that happens if the government were to remove that law. As you may have heard, we've had discussions that apparently are coming out that they're either considering removing the morality police or the head cover requirement. So to me, that's the first step of the demise of this regime. And what are the consequences if either of these were to take place, either eliminating or changing the nature of the morality police? There are reports that is something, at least there's one, I'm looking at a BBC article now, there's a a high-ranking official that has suggested that could be, be something that's in the works. And then you talk about the possibility of removing the headscarf law. Now, this is something tied into the Quran. So if you would, I, I'm going to call on you to speculate just a bit. What could either or both of these actions, what could result from them? Well, see, if you if you look at the way Islam, if you take religion and you impose it from the government, meaning you're saying it's no longer a personal practice, but we're going to mandate religiosity, that never works. So every country in most of the Muslim countries that have forced uh, religious laws, so whether you look at some of them in Saudi Arabia or in Qatar, I mean, Qatar, not so much, but now Afghanistan, remember that all the controversy about the mandatory burqas that the women were wearing. When you do that by force, The people, I mean, God put in all of us the innate desire to be free. So they do that in order to control the population. But eventually the people demand freedom because no one can withstand that kind of oppression forever. And so whether it's taken 40 years, 50 years or 80 years, now in the example of Iran, the the government is feeling the pressure to release this valve, but to me it's a it's a huge spiritual opening because once the people are no longer oppressed in that fashion, there'll be even more impetus for them to then eventually throw out this government and find the courage and the strength to be able to stand up to them. So how should we as the church, as you see, and you bring this out in the Christian Post article, how should we regard what is occurring with respect to our brothers and sisters inside Iran? You know, it's as it's it's surprising to me that the church is actually not more concerned and more outspoken because Christ taught has taught us that we are one church. He doesn't see us as an American church or an Iranian church. If one me- one member of the body is hurting, the whole Um, body is hurting and is affected. And so I'm a little surprised that there isn't a bigger push in government to sanction the Iranian regime, to prevent them from negotiating any terms of the nuclear deal, that the Christian community should be out front of this issue. It is the fastest growing church in the world. And 
I wish I would see more Christians outspoken to their local officials, to the government, to their congresspersons, writing and blogging and putting on social media these issues so that the world takes notice that the church is crying and pleading on behalf of the brothers and sisters that are in Iran. Hedy Amir Ahmadi here on The Intersection. You can find out more at ChristianPost.com. She is also founder of Resurrect Ministry, which can be found online at ResurrectMinistry.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more by going to MeetingHouseOnline.info or by visiting the programming section at FaithRadio.org. Through the Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast. Also, you can find links to the podcast, to the Media Center, as well as its Apple Podcast feed. And you can find a link to the Faith Radio YouTube channel and view conversation highlights with a number of Meeting House guests. Plus, there are two blogs that are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. There's also The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms. Search for Faith Radio Podcasts at Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. This is the Intersection Podcast. I had the chance recently to talk with Mary Beth Waddell, Director of Federal Affairs for Family and Religious Liberty at Family Research Council. In our conversation, she provided analysis of the Respect for Marriage Act, which passed Congress and was signed by the President. She highlighted religious liberty concerns pointed out by FRC and like-minded organizations. Here now from that conversation is Mary Beth Waddell. You saw back in July... uh, as you pointed out, this bill is unnecessary. Uh, there was no threat to Obergefell. There was no threat uh, to same-sex marriages or the ability for same-sex couples to marry. Um, none of that was in any kind of jeopardy. Um, and But you saw in the wake of the overturning of Roe with the Dobbs decision, this sort of uh, backlash you know, if you will, sort of glomming on to this marriage issue um, and the language of Clarence Thomas's uh, concurrence uh, to try and paint this picture as if there was a threat when he was simply pointing out the problems with the legal theory of substantive due process, um, which is the legal theory that a number of these cases were actually uh, decided under. And he himself is in an interracial marriage. And, you know, many of the proponents, particularly in the early days of July before the first House vote, were not just mentioning same-sex marriages needing protection, but also interracial marriages needing protection, that they were in jeopardy. But he himself is in an interracial marriage, so he's not actually going to put something in an opinion that is going to undermine his own marriage. Um, And so that sort of begs the question then what's really going on here? What is this really about? Um, And because it doesn't really change the status quo at all, uh, as Senator Lee uh, very well pointed out, 
uh, for same-sex marriage. What it does change the status quo for is uh, for religious liberty and for people of faith. Um, and so it's just continuing uh, and increasing uh, those instances of litigious and litigation attacks on folks that we've seen, uh, and I think we'll continue uh, to see those um, in the future. So what did Family Research Council and other organizations find so insufficient about the the ill-fated attempts to put a religious liberty component into the Respect for Marriage Act? The first part of the language simply restates what's in current law. Um, says, you know, there are pre-existing religious liberty and conscience rights in the Constitution and federal law, and these people and organizations still have access to those. Well, that has not meant anything insofar as it has not prevented these litigious attacks and drawing people into litigation uh, for three, five, seven, ten years. Even if there's victory uh, in the courts, like Jack Phillips had, he was sued again within like three, four days and is still having to go through that litigation and proving and his having to bring up his religious liberty rights and his conscience rights and use that as a defense and taking years in the process uh, with a real human cost, particularly if you look at the um, adoption and foster care space. You know, when Philadelphia decided to kick out Catholic charities uh, in the wake of an emergent need for foster homes, there was a real human cost to women and children and families in need um, because you had a foster parent of the year's home that was empty because it didn't matter that there were 28 other options for adoption and foster care agencies. It didn't matter that Catholic Charities would provide a referral. It didn't matter that Catholic Charities had never actually denied anyone any service. It was the city wanted to attack them for their religion. Um, And so those are the kinds of things that you're going to continue to see and that this language doesn't provide any protection for. The second... uh, piece of language on this looks good on its face in that it talks about these nonprofit organizations, it talks about uh, churches and synagogues and religious education institutions, but if you look at the actual language of the protection, it's so narrow. They have to, these individuals uh, or these entities would have to prove their principal purpose is the study, practice, or advancement of religion, so they have to be religious enough. And then if they're religious enough, the only protection they have is from not having to perform an actual wedding itself, which is not where we're seeing this litigation. It's not Mm -hmm. over, this person will not marry me. It's over everything else surrounding that. And so clearly that's not going to provide any protection um, for religious liberty. Mary Beth Waddell here on The Intersection. You can find out more at frc.org. Well, finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's Executive General Counsel for First Liberty, Hiram Sasser. In a recent conversation, he discussed events in King County, Washington, that include Seattle and surrounding areas, where employees are not allowed to engage in religious expression, which would include Christmas celebration and other religious expressions. That would apply to virtual meetings as well. Here now from that conversation is Hiram Sasser. They sent out a memo uh, to all their employees saying, you know, no no Christmas decorations, no nativity scenes, 
uh, and especially, you know, in your virtual workspace. So if you're working from <laughs> home, you can't have like a Christmas tree uh, in the background or any kind of Christmas decorations that are showing when you're, you know, zooming in and for your meetings and that sort of thing. But they, they, they went further and they, they banned menorahs uh, or any kind of Hanukkah uh, uh, decorations. They then decided, I guess, that they needed to just go all in. And so they banned a uh, star and crescent. They wanted to make sure the Muslims weren't uh, weren't showing that they're Muslim. Uh, they they decided to ban various Hindu symbols uh, and, uh, and 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 other uh, de- decorations uh, uh, that Hindus might put up. And so they they try to go all in and ban anything that acknowledged something greater than the than the government. I mean. They, they did not ban the hammer and sickle, for example, right? But they did ban any kind of acknowledgement of religion at all. What's very bizarre about this situation with King County is that just across Puget Sound uh, is Bremerton, Washington. <laughs> and that's, hey. that's and we represent yeah. Coach Kennedy yep. uh, against Bremerton, Washington, over the issue of whether or not he could pray on the 50-yard line after the games. Of course, you know, we lost at the district court, and then we lost at the Ninth Circuit, and then we went up to the Supreme Court. They sent it back down. Then we lost again at the district court. We lost at the Ninth Circuit, and then we won at the U.S. Supreme Court 6-3 to three, that that employees, when they are engaged in, in their own private conduct, they're allowed to pray and have other religious expression uh, free from government censorship. So if... if Applying that rule to this situation here, where you're not allowed to have any kind of religious displays, including Christmas displays, visible in the background of your uh, of your Zoom call, because you're you're working from home, uh, it, it, that is a complete violation of our case Kennedy versus Bremerton. Uh, they've got to know that case exists. It's a U.S. Sure. Supreme Court case. Right. There's a lot of media attention about it, and it's in their backyard. So they've got to know that that exists. So for whatever reason, I guess they just they figured, well, and this is kind of you'll see this a lot, especially on the West Coast. They figure, well, the Supreme Court's not going to take every case. So we can discriminate as much as we want. We know that the Ninth Circuit has got our back. The Ninth Circuit's going to sanction whatever kind of religious discrimination that they. I mean, this is I think what they're thinking is. I don't know. Maybe that's not. Maybe that's not necessarily true anymore. The Ninth Circuit's a little bit more balanced now. But, but I think their thinking is we'll we'll just keep doing the religious censorship until someone tells us we can't get away with it anymore. And 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 that that just seems to me to be quite outrageous. So the fact is that the Supreme Court's already ruled on this issue, just ruled recently, and ruled in their backyard, and they're still doing it. It's a, it's amazing. And just to, to underscore, I mean, again, we see so much. It's been called the war on Christmas, where we have people in that have been they're they're. Expression of the celebration of Christmas has been curtailed. It's you just because, you know, Christmas doesn't have any sort of special privileges. I mean, religious discrimination is religious discrimination. It doesn't have to be Christmas. And it seems like that you've got this expression of Christmas that has been targeted over the years. But from a constitutional standpoint, what is allowed with respect to people displaying Christmas decor at their, their workplaces. 
Sure. Well, there's two there's two levels of protection. If you work for the government, like King County, you know, these are these are government employees, and you have both Title VII of the Civil Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, you also have uh, the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Actually, in Washington, the Washington Supreme Court uh, is unusually very protective of religion. Religious liberty in the workspace hmm. uh, under their under their state provisions as well, and so you, you have lots of layers. Now, if you're in a private, uh, even if you work for a private company, if you work for a company that has more than 15 employees, uh, then Title VII uh, of the Civil Rights Act applies to you, and it provides religious uh, uh, liberty protections. Hiram Sasser here on the intersection. The website address is first spell it out liberty. We are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center. That's the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast and the Meeting House radio program. You can find links to the intersection to the Media Center as well as the Apple Podcast feed. And you can find a link to the Faith Radio YouTube channel where you can watch video of Meeting House guests. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. There's also The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter at Access the Meeting House Facebook page. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or you can visit the programming menu at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast. Merry Christmas to you. I'm Bob Crittenden.